0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And we all possess multiple identities. You are both a brother and a son, a daughter and a mother, Chinese and American and Asian, gay and polyamorous. The combinations are nearly endless, and these identities are not always in parallel. They do not necessarily exist in harmony with one another. Sometimes, often, there is tension. Our guest this week writes about the conflicting and even discomforting intersections of identity and the importance of embracing that tension. Tomiwa Owolade is a writer and critic. He has written for numerous publications, including The Times, The Spectator, The Sunday Times, The Financial Times, The Evening Standard, and Literary Review. He is also a contributing editor for Unheard. Tomiwa, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Well, it is a pleasure for me as well. Now, in an alumni profile for the Queen Mary University of London this year, you spoke about your favorite subjects, history and English. Describing them, you said, quote, I loved history because I loved learning new things. I felt fulfilled when I learned a new fact or detail from the past. And I loved English because I loved inhabiting new worlds, end quote. Now, I imagine many writers share a similar sort of intertwined love of English and history because... What is history but a collection of stories about humanity? So a couple of questions to start us off. First, what's a story from history that you find particularly fascinating and you wish people knew more about? What kind of first got you hooked?
1: The first story that I first researched on Wikipedia more than a few times is a story of Buddhika or
0: Boudicaya. Are you familiar with that story? No, I'm not. Tell me more.
1: Buddhika? Or Boudickea, I think there are different ways to actually pronounce her name, was a figure from Britain, I think around the time when Britain was occupied by the Roman Empire. So she lived in the first century AD, so the first century after Christ. And yeah, so she was, um, and she led an uprising against the Roman Empire. I think I was fascinated by this particular story because it felt like a fairy tale or something which was mythical, but was in fact based on fact.
0: Wow, that's almost... Now, I granted, I don't know anything about that story, but just kind of at first blush, it almost feels like a kind of Joan of Arc. Yes, exactly. A you know, woman leading her. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: And Joan of Arc as well is, is based on fact.
0: That's really cool.
1: I'm interested in, in sort of things from the past, which seem almost too good to be true, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, larger-than-life figures, you could say.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah, that actually reminds me of another fellow you've mentioned by the name of Ira Aldridge. I'm sure that's ringing some bells.
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: Before I began prepping for our interview, I'll admit to myself that, uh, and to the audience here that I'd never heard of him. What about his story fascinated you? Was it his larger-than-life status as well?
1: Yes, and also the cosmopolitan life that he led. my thing that really Fascinating me. So Ira Aldridge was an African-American actor born in New York in 1807. And he struggled to get acting roles in the U.S., of course, due to the- understandable <laughs> Yeah, yeah, of, of course, of course. Yeah, the, the um, obvious racism that sort of prevented him from getting any opportunities. So he moved to the U.K., to England, and performed in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is where Shakespeare was from. And he later performed in Europe as well. He performed in Germany, in Poland, and also in Russia. And he ended up marrying both an English woman, but also a Swedish woman as well. I just admired how he was able to lead a cosmopolitan lifestyle in a century that was characterized by different forms of oppression. Yeah, that's what fascinated me about Ira Aldridge.
0: Wow. Wow. That's a really fascinating story. And what it speaks to, I think, or how it's relevant to our larger conversation today is experiences of racism and uh, I guess what one could call blackness in both the US and the UK and how in modern times, those two very distinct and different experiences are often conflated with the American experience of racism and what one would define as blackness being kind of mapped onto the UK experience when Even as long ago as the 19th century, those two things were often quite distinct. But before we get to the bulk of your essays and the reason we're chatting today, I just have one more question, because I grew up with a fascination for writing as well. I fell in love with it from a young age. So what is one of your first memories of writing? And what did you love about writing as a child?
1: I think the very first serious attempt I made at writing was for an award at my secondary school. So when I was 13, there was this award called the Josh Beasley Award for Creativity. And for that particular competition, I entered in a play, which I wrote, and I ended up winning the award, in fact. So my very first forays into writing for pleasure was writing in a sort of in a fictional fictional or creative sense, rather than most of the writing, which I do now, which is more essays and nonfiction. So my first love of writing itself was connected to my love of English. A few years before then, I was gripped by a sequence of young adult novels called Alex Rider, so the Alex Rider series, which were written by an English writer called Anthony Horowitz. Are you familiar with that series?
0: I'm not, no, tell me more about it.
1: So Alex Rider is basically a 14-year-old James Bond, essentially, so a teenage spy who's recruited by MI6, which is the British equivalent of the CIA, because his uncle was also a spy. And at the start of the series, his uncle was murdered by a Russian agent. So throughout the sequence of books, Alex Rider keeps being dragged by MI6 into spying and basically saving the world. It's basically James Bond for teenagers. And I was also a big fan of James Bond, by the way, during my youth. So most of my early reading consisted of action novels and
0: thrillers, more so than more the serious things I read now. (laughs) I mean, that sounds like a novel that I would have loved if I were that age and it came out. That sounds really, really wonderful. Do you ever miss fiction writing? Is it something you think you might dip your toe into again at some point?
1: Possibly. I'll keep that a secret for now.
0: (laughs) We'll cross that bridge when we get to it.
1: (laughs) Yes, of course.
0: In that same alumni profile, you actually mentioned a book that you're currently working on. Quote, the book is a critique of a tendency to conflate the experiences and cultures of the Black British population with the Black American population. Obviously, there are instances when comparisons are valid, but the assumption, which I found pervasive after the Black Lives Matter protests last year, that we can analyze Black Britain through an American lens is reductive, end quote. And I'd love to expand on this with you and ground it in your own personal story. So What was your cultural upbringing growing up, and how would you arrange the respective elements of your identity if you were to prioritize them in a sort of hierarchy? How do you consider yourself, I guess you could say?
1: I can answer this question in in two ways. I can answer it by answering the last question you asked, or I could answer it by speaking about my cultural upbringing. And I think the two ways are slightly different. Let me answer the question by talking about my upbringing, and then I'll answer your latter question. So I was actually born in Nigeria and I moved to the UK when I was nine. In Nigeria, I think the interesting thing about being a young person in Nigeria is that my sense of Black identity was very much connected not to Britain, which colonized Nigeria in the 19th century, but my Black identity was actually connected to America. And I think this is in part due to America's cultural hegemony throughout the world. I felt that my Blackness, so to speak, was related more to an American version of Blackness rather than to, say, a British version of Blackness. So I moved to the UK when I was nine. And throughout that time, I still felt a stronger affinity to American cultural norms around Blackness. This created a a dissonance in me. It created a sort of tension because on one hand, I was being acculturated into Britain's black community, but on the other hand, I still felt a strong affiliation to America's cultural blackness. And I think this sort of dissonance has only been clear to me recently as I began to really deepen my understanding of America's racial dynamics. And in deepening that understanding, I realized just how Strange and peculiar it is, and therefore, our auditors to view it as something which can be universalized into the experiences of black people around the world.
0: Yeah, now understanding that everyone's experience with their own identity is unique. A good friend of mine, as an aside, who passed away earlier this year, was of Nigerian descent, and I, I always found his conversations or his grappling or that tension that you're talking about, negotiating his Nigerian ethnic slash tribal identity with American blackness, you could say, that was kind of projected onto him and he in some way had to either consciously or subconsciously absorb through cultural affectations and slang, et cetera. What really intrigued me about what you just said is this was something that was affecting you while you were in Nigeria?
1: Yes, of course. Because in Nigeria, I consumed American TV shows, American films, American music, American culture, essentially. And I saw that was the means through which I developed my Black identity, essentially. Because America's Black cultural identity is, is frankly, more powerful and more charismatic than any sense of Black identity I had living in Nigeria. In Nigeria, without
0: because everyone in Nigeria is Black,
1: so there's nothing to
0: right. negotiate with. It shows the power of, I guess, race and just the idea that you were cultivating a quote-unquote Black identity in an all-quote-unquote Black country mm. <laughs> that almost, and I don't want to speak for you, so please jump mm. in after I finish this. It almost feels like it you were cultivating it because you felt it had more cultural Cachet, so to speak, or more cultural relevance. I mean, obviously, as a child, yeah. Then, how much mileage or power you felt your own actual ethnic Nigerian identity could give you? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, because the Americanized version of a black identity is just cooler. That's the bluntest way of putting it. We do
0: have some pretty cool culture. I won't lie. Yeah,
1: that's yeah, and, and it's and it's also related because I know you've read my review of Timothy Ogene's novel Seesaw. Yes, that's a theme which he explores in that novel. So in in that novel, there's a character called Frank Jasper, a Nigerian young man, aspiring novelist as well. He moves to America for a writing fellowship. And when he moves to America, he feels the need to cultivate a very distinct black identity, one which is modeled on what Americans expect black people to be like, essentially.
0: I was actually, there was a quote from that book that you referenced in your review that so gripped me that that quote alone made me go out and buy the Kindle version of it on Amazon, which I'm excited to read it. But on identity, I'd love to kind of expand more into how you felt about your quote unquote black or Nigerian identity as a child versus how you now feel as an adult. You've said, quote, I think any sort of collective pride I might feel in my black, Nigerian, or British identity is qualified by a queasy sense that my identity is subsumed into a larger force over which I have little control over, and thus, to my dismay, can't do anything about. So I'm in a state of tension with this question. tension is good. Tension is what keeps us alive, end quote. And suffice to say, 2020 and 2021 have been banner years when it comes to uh, tension around things like identity. So How has this tension manifested itself in your own life over the last two years?
1: I think one way it's manifested in my life is between the desire to write about issues relating to race and the need not to be seen as a quote-unquote Black writer. So before, two years ago, I was interested in issues related to race, but I kept my interest relatively private because I didn't want people to just see me exclusively through a racial angle. I wanted people to also see that I have interests that transcend my racial identity. I have interests which are completely unrelated to my racial identity. I wanted to be a fuller and more richer person. And I felt that dipping my toes into discourse around race would inevitably prejudice people's perception of me. That's just one side of it. But the other side of it is that I felt frustrated by the discourse around race, especially after the murder of George Floyd. I thought the discourse was too reductive, too patronizing, too superficial, and lacked any specificity which would acknowledge the fact that not all black people are the same and would also give honor and respect to The differences within the various black communities in the world. It's that tension between not wanting to be seen as a black writer, quote unquote, but also the sense of responsibility I felt to express my views on this issue because I thought the issue itself has been dominated by a reductive analysis, which doesn't give full complexity to the lives of black people.
0: Yeah. And I feel like my conversations with immigrants, whether it's immigrants to America or Britain, who are racialized as black, I feel like offer the clearest kind of exploration of what the strictures of race, uh, the straitjacket of race, so to speak, like really is, right? Because I feel like in an American context, and I know you're well familiar with this from your childhood and your writing as an adult, when someone talks about being black, here in the United States like it has a very specific meaning. And so when someone talks about like let's say transcending race and I know fellow British Nigerian Anaya Fuller and Amon has even gotten pushback in the UK over this but I think her point is well made that to be black in America has a very specific cultural historical baggage meaning, right? Baggage or some Americans would also proudly claim it as a cultural inheritance. But what that does though and why I think having these kinds of conversations I think highlights the difference between, let's say, what is race and what is kind of become in the American context to kind of ethnic cultural heritage with American descendants of slaves is like my friend who passed this year and other immigrant black Americans that I know, and your own story is you're kind of just drafted in. It's a race is something that happens to you. And I think that Mm. when talking about this topic with people who aren't American Descendants of Slaves, which is which is its own unique history. When we talk about blackness as a global phenomenon and how people, like in the novel Seesaw, which we'll talk about in a moment, kind of have all these expectations and projections placed on them, that's when I think the clearest image of the strictures of race kind of starts to form because you see that it's not just something that is confined to the American experiment, so to speak, but metastasizes like a cancer that kind of just infects everyone whether they want to or not, which leads to situations like yours where you're like, okay, am I just going to be a writer or am I going to suddenly become a black writer Mm. who's writing about quote unquote race issues? And Mm. anyway, that's what fascinated me about your writing and what you actually just said just now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. And it's that it's a double bind because if I choose not to write about it, yeah. I just get frustrated <laughs> all the time. And if I choose not to write about it, people will still assume that I had certain views on particular issues related to race simply because I'm a university educated black person living in a global city. And people tend to make assumptions based on that demographic fact about my views on certain issues related to race and identity.
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And, and obviously, and we'll talk about this in a second as well, the race is a phenomenon that obviously happens to everybody. A Asian-American friend of mine once famously said, there are no Asians in Asia. You become Asian when you leave Asia and then race is kind of projected onto you and all the baggage that comes with that. Now, I understand for our UK listeners that Asian has a different connotation in the UK than it does here in the United States, but I think the point holds Speaking of writers and books about this topic, Nigerian-American writer Teju Cole echoes your unease around kind of prescribed identities. As quoted in your essay, What Does It Mean to Be Black?, which you wrote for Unheard. He writes, quote, Was I African? I didn't feel it. What I felt was a Lagos boy, a speaker of Yoruba, a citizen of Nigeria. The Africans were those other people, some of whom I read about in books or had seen wearing tribal costumes in magazines or encountered in weird fictional form in movies, end quote. And you go on to write how, quote, African is kind of an imposed fiction, a mythical, leading back to what you said about mythical stories, Mm. a mythical, broad, sort of imagined thing that's Mm. disconnected from the actual people that live within the continent from which the name is derived. You go on to talk about how even the more inclusive-sounding Black is, as you later summarize Cole's views, rooted in, again, a singular American-centric definition, Mm. not quote, about every Black person in the world. It was localized to the American situation, end quote. Mm. So as we've been talking, if both Black and African, as descriptive terms, fall short both in accuracy and relevance, what does it mean today? For you, for your friends who might share your prescribed racial identity, what does it mean to be Black British in the 21st century?
1: It doesn't mean one thing. That's the simplest way of answering your question. It means many things, some of which are in tension with each other. So the um, Black British community itself has undergone an extraordinary transformation over the past 25 years. So 25 years ago, the majority of Black people in the UK were descended from immigrants from the Caribbean so they were descended from slaves actually that were taken to the Caribbean but over the past 25 years there's been a large increase in immigration from Africa to the UK
0: for our audience when you talk about the previous generation of the black population in the UK you're, you're speaking specifically of the what would be called the windrush generation
1: yes yes exactly the windrush generation famously generation of immigrants that moved between 1948 to the 1970s, but over the past 25 years, there's been a large increase in immigration from Africa, both from West African countries like Nigeria and Ghana, but also East African countries as well, like Somalia to the UK, which means that as of now, the majority of black people in the UK are either immigrants from Africa or the children of immigrants from Africa which means, therefore, that the majority of black people in the UK are not descended from the victims of the transatlantic slave trade.
0: I wonder, just as kind of an offshoot, because what I've noticed sort of happening in America, and obviously the histories are different, and black Americans, so to speak, have been around in the United States since before the founding, longer than most quote-unquote white Americans but it's been interesting as there's been an influx of african and caribbean immigrants to the united states since mm. the hart act of 1965 which mm. liberalized immigration law it's kind of a negotiation about what it quote unquote means to be black right because what it meant quote unquote to be black was often i mean almost exclusively actually associated with one quote unquote <laughs> i'm using a lot of i'm going i'm using a lot of air quotes in this conversation but one specific story that began with enslavement and then went to being freed and then the struggles of Jim Crow etc hmm. there was kind of a unifying even though of course people were all over the country there was a unifying story that kind of bound everyone together in a sort of shared history
1: yeah that was a clear narrative
0: yes exactly and and that narrative has had to Give in some ways because the strictures of race mean that anyone who is racialized as black then gets admitted into the quote unquote club. And then what it means to be black is now being affected and changed by immigrant populations who have come to the United States over the last 50 something years. Mm. Have you noticed a similar dynamic? Has there been a tension between the kind of older generations of Caribbean, I guess you could say native born stock who've been there for a much longer period of time, and the new waves of immigrants who are coming from different parts of the world?
1: Well, the interesting thing is that in the 1950s and 60s, there was some tension between Caribbean immigrants and immigrants from Africa. So Caribbean immigrants tended to be more working class, whereas immigrants from Africa were more likely to be students. And so African immigrants tended to view Caribbeans as more uncivilized and more degenerate, in fact. Whereas Caribbeans tend to view Africans as more stuck up and more pompous, but now I think amongst the younger generation between black people from a West African or East African background and black people from a Caribbean background, there's a greater degree of of uniformity, I believe mm. a greater degree of assimilation between the different black communities, which I don't think is necessarily reflected amongst the older generations I think. Amongst the older generations of Black people, there is still some degree of tension between British West Indians, British Caribbeans, and British Africans. But amongst the younger generation, there is a far greater degree of uniformity.
0: Now, obviously, the hostile tension and mutual disrespect that you described that existed, kind of in the nineteen fifties, between the African and Caribbean populations is is not something that I think anyone would strive for. But when it comes to the uniformity that you're talking about, do you see that as a, what kind of uniformity are you speaking of exactly? Is it something that is, feels kind of imposed like a stricture or is it a uniformity? No, of,
1: I, I, think, I think it was a uniformity that was cultivated just out of greater uh, intermixture, a greater degree of, empathy. of culture, yeah, cultural uniformity. So younger black people and even some, a lot of younger white people as well in the UK, especially in urban areas, tend to speak a particular slang, which is endogenous to the UK. We share certain cultural affinities, certain similar interests in music and TV, and certain interests in particular shops, sort of like, I I don't know the the sort of American equivalent to it would be, but certain like chain stores where, where they sell chicken.
0: Oh yeah, they're called like what chicken shops or something like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. In the UK they, they're just called chicken shops, but I'm not sure what the American equivalent
0: would be. There was this 12 or 13 year old, he was so young. He went like viral like 10 years ago. Yes, yes. He was rapping about different chicken shops that he was. Yeah, reviewing. the
1: chicken shop kind of sea.
0: It was so funny.
1: <laughs> I'm surprised that I reached America. I thought that was just the UK.
0: It was so funny because I had never heard of chicken shops before, like ever. Like I just, it wasn't something, it's not a slang that is used here. It was like on the Front page of Dig or Reddit or something—it just exploded, and I thought it was so funny. It was so well made.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, chicken shops—they play a central str- role in in Black British identity.
0: <laughs> and this is kind of an aside, and I—I'm I, not even sure how to phrase it. I, it's just merely an observation, not any kind of declaration, I guess, so to speak. But I will say, in terms of American Black cultural export, right? You were talking about how, as a young boy growing up in Nigeria you felt the kind of the power of that culture mm. influencing and affecting you right and i think i saw some polls i don't know how many years ago that the average person living outside of america if they're asked what the black population of the united states is they oftentimes estimate it to be around 25% or one mm. out of every four people when in mm. fact it's 12 or one out of eight mm. and i will admit also and again i know we're speaking of incredibly distinct populations mm. <laughs> so mm. i want to be very clear here but if i didn't mention this I think for the average American, if they hear that only 3% of the UK is racially black, I think it's sort of similarly surprising because it feels like the black populations within the UK has had, I guess, one could say an outsized cultural impact on the country as a whole. Mm. And I don't have any larger statement there, but it was just a connection that I just made in my mind mm. that there just seems to be an outsized impact that both countries have when it comes to their, I guess, yes. racialized black populations. They, they seem to have a real heft to them.
1: Yes. And I think another interesting thing which people might not know about is that the quote unquote Asian population in America is, I believe, about 6%. Yeah. Yes. But in the UK, it's a much higher percentage than that. It's it's also a much higher percentage than the black British population.
0: Yes. And Asian in the UK, for our listeners, is usually speaking of people of South Asian descent.
1: Yes. Yes. usually, Usually that. Whereas in America, it's usually East Asians. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, I think another problem with viewing Britain through America's racial lens is that it also distorts the fact that Britain's racial demographics is different from America and in that sort of rudimentary way.
0: Oh, absolutely. The conflation, I think, is a real problem. Now, we've had two other Nigerian British guests on the show, the aforementioned Anaya mm. and Aman mm. and Aisha Kambi. And while I imagine that their views on race and identity overlap in certain places, there's also daylight between their views, mm. as there would be between any two people. But I mentioned their heritage and yours to draw us to a point you make in your essay for persuasion called Please Stop Imposing American Views About Race on Us, which is something we've been talking about today. In that essay, you say, quote, to understand the experience of Black Britons, it is not only necessary to grasp how different their history is from that of Black Americans. We need to understand the diversity captured by the label Black British. For example, around two out of every three students from Congolese or Somali origins get free school meals, a standard indicator that their parents are poor, Among students with Nigerian or Ghanaian origins, only one in five do, end quote. You later say, quote, on average, 58% of black African students graduate from middle school at grade level, about the same number as white students. But black Caribbean students are significantly less likely to do so, Mm. while those whose parents hail from Nigeria actually outperform their white peers by a considerable margin, end quote. So while the label, quote, black, can be useful in the British and global context Mm. to denote at least some shared experience of what it means to be racialized as black and how that may affect how one is perceived by others in the matter of tracking performance and measuring discrimination, it may obscure more than it reveals. So, Tamiwa, in your view, what are the real and potential consequences of this labeling when it comes to how we would address and alleviate potential Mm. problems in society? And may there be a better path forward.
1: Yeah, I think the problem with viewing Black as a homogenous label without specifically identifying the particular cultural or ethnic origins of the Black person or the Black communities that we're referring to means that we can't specifically identify the inequalities within our society. So as I was saying, there is significant socioeconomic differences between black West Africans and black people in the UK from other African countries. So black Congolese, black Somalis as well. And also in terms of educational attainment, as as I was writing in that piece, there are differences within different black population groups. And I think another thing, which I'm not sure I mentioned in that piece, but which is also true, is that Black Caribbean students are twice as likely, more than twice as likely to be excluded from school as Black West African students. In British
0: parlance, does excluded, what does that mean? Is it like suspended? Yes, yeah, suspended from school. Okay.
1: Yeah. So if we just think about race in a very abstract and generalized term without being specific in our application of racial categories... It means that we can't actually identify the inequalities within the black communities. And if we genuinely care, if we're genuinely committed to addressing inequalities, whether they're motivated by race or by class or by culture, whatever the cause of these inequalities, if we genuinely care about trying to redress them, we need to be more specific in our application of racial and ethnic categories.
0: Yeah, I think that's well said. Because I think that there is a certain kind of person, and I mean this generously, Mm. who would read what you wrote and say, oh, he's calling out the Congolese, he's calling out Somali immigrants, as underperforming. Mm. But that's not the point you're making at all. Mm. I think what you just said is very astute. Mm. I think the issue is if we want to and I'll toss the ball back to you in a second. Mm. To but if we want to address inequalities or inequities in society, if we want to help the populations and the children when it comes to school mm. who need it most, it means that the response must be as finely tailored as possible. Mm. So if you're saying black students, let's say, quote unquote, black students are failing at XYZ rate or underperforming at XYZ rate, then you're using a sledgehammer in a situation that requires a scalpel. Yes, If you know that it's specifically Somali students just to pick one population Mm. who are underperforming, then you can culturally retrofit your mm. response to something that might speak to them mm. more than it might speak to say a caribbean population. Mm. And so th- i think that a lot of people not present company but a lot of people might misunderstand what is meant by that portion of the essay of yours that i just read. Yes. It's not trying to create a hierarchy of blackness or a kind of model minority around nigerians or whatever population. Mm. It's the understanding that if we're actually going to address potential inequities, you have to tailor those solutions to the populations that are most affected.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, you, you put it very well. It's it's uh, actually motivated by compassion. Yes. And and I think you can only ever feel compassion for a group of people if you acknowledge that not all of their experiences are the same. Yes. W- which seems like such a obvious thing to say, but which is not actually reflected in the way we discuss race.
0: Yes. And it also, and I, I feel like this is an appeal to the quote unquote left, right? It also helps people feel seen, mm. right? Like if you understand that you are being seen as a British Jamaican or a British Mm. Somali or whatever it is, right? Mm. I mean, we could talk about any population, Asian, Mm. white, whatever. But for the purposes of this conversation, if you recognize that you are being seen Mm. as a member of a specific ethnic group, a specific history, a specific culture, rather than quote unquote black, Mm. which again, encompasses what? A dozen different, more than a dozen different identities. Mm. I would imagine you're more likely to get buy-in from that population because it shows that you've done your homework and you care
1: yeah it, it's that and also many black communities within the u k don't just rely upon their black identity as a source of pride, yeah they also feel a sense of pride in the, in their particular national identity as well, so a sense of pride in terms of their Nigerian British identity, in terms of their Ghanaian British identity in terms of the, the Jamaican british identity, and I think that's another reason why we should be more culturally specific rather than just homogenizing all the different black communities in this country.
0: Yes. And you said as much at the end of that essay, please stop imposing American views about race on us. Mm. When you said, quote, racists assume that black people are all the same. Ironically, anti-racists sometimes do so too. Mm. But anybody who is truly committed to racial equality needs to recognize that this kind of simplification neither serves justice nor reflects the truth, end quote. Not to read you back to you, but I thought that was particularly well said. Thank you. In your What Does It Mean to Be Black essay, you quote a passage from Timothy Ogene's new book, Seesaw, which we referenced earlier, Mm. that, as I mentioned, it so struck me that it was kind of just an immediate buy. In it, the lead character, the kind of world-weary Nigerian Frank Jasper, who you mentioned earlier, Mm. he develops a kind of cynical ambivalence to his patronized status as a, quote, race expert Mm. upon arriving in America and the baggage of a Western-imposed, quote, Black identity. Mm. And in that book, he says, quote, I just wanted to exist and cry and laugh and fuck and live (laughs) and die without prefacing or suffixing my actions with any universal idea of blackness or Africanness or whatever thing out there I was supposedly tied to as a POC or a BAME or warped extension of someone else's imagination, end quote. Mm. And like fictional character Frank Jasper, like real author Teju Cole, much of your writing, Tamiwa... Seems driven by the same fundamental desire. To name a selection of titles from essays you've written, right? The Dangerous Logic of Anti Racism, Black Radicals Don't Need White Saviors, The Black Saint Against White Guilt, The Godfather of Critical Race Theory, and the several essays that we've already discussed today. Mm. As you've repeatedly noted in many of your essays, and as we've discussed, people who are labeled black, be they living in America, the continent of Africa, UK, or anywhere else, contain multitudes. So I guess my question is, we know what draws you to be a writer. We have a bit of an understanding from what you said about why you write about identity, right? But I feel like there has to be, if I may be so bold, it feels like a lot of what kind of motivates your writing is that kind of similar frustration that was articulated by Frank Jasper, mm. right? Am I, am I getting at that correctly?
1: Yes, 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 that's true. Yeah, <laughs> there is definitely a similar sense of frustration with Frank Jasper, and in particular that quote. Basically, all, all my writing about race essentially boils down to one sentence not all black people are the same. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think that's what I try to basically expand upon in, in all my writings about race, though in explicit ways or more implicit ways.
0: The feeling, and again, I don't want to speak for you, hmm. but I feel a sense, a kind of almost building or just at the surface exasperation on your part of, to go back to something you said earlier, it's like you don't want necessarily, again, this is me imposing my own view based on reading your writings, but it almost feels like you don't want to be writing about it. But your frustration from having to write about it feels very clear in your writing. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I
1: I, I think that's, That's correct.
0: Is that too bold? It just it feels like a a man who almost feels like I he wishes we lived in a time in which this writing was rendered.
1: Yes, in fact, I'd rather be writing about James Joyce or D.H. Lawrence. Yeah, that's what I feel in your writing, (laughs) or, or Virginia Woolf, rather than writing about race discourse. And I and I think that's part of the reason why I'm writing the book. My goal with the book is basically all my frustrations will be, all my pent up frustrations will be expended in the process of writing this book Mm. and and, and I could retire (laughs) myself as a so-called race writer after I finish writing the book. Maybe that might not actually occur, but yeah, there is definitely that. I'm glad you noticed this because some people might not, but there is definitely that sense of frustration with actually writing about this, but also a sense of duty as well. I hope it's not just frustration that comes across. No, no, not at all. But not, not to sound too pompous, but I do feel a sense of duty and obligation to write about it, because I do think that, as I was saying, the discourse is so distorted and so reductive that I think I have a valuable perspective to offer on it.
0: Yes. And to make sure that my view is clearly articulated as well, there's no sense of like shame there or, mm. or unease around your Black British identity. Mm. It's more, and you can see this in Black American writers as well. You can even see it in writers like James Baldwin, Mm. Ralph Ellison, there's just this feeling, it's not any kind of baggage around being ashamed of quote, unquote, being black. It's this idea that one wishes to live in a society in which writing and stories like this are rendered obsolete. Yes, And that the the task of writing about it, while it's something that people rise to the occasion to do, is something that one wishes one did not have to do. Mm. And that's something that comes through in your writing.
1: Yes, 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 definitely. And yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a case of being, yeah, as, as you put it perfectly, it's not a case of me being ashamed of my, my black British identity or being slightly neurotic about it. it. It's just the desire to not make that identity the exclusive or the only part of me, like make, make that identity the exclusive lens by which people or myself would consider me, if that makes sense.
0: No, Absolutely. Absolutely. As you mentioned earlier in our conversation about kind of what drove you to kind of overcome your your unease about being labeled as a quote unquote black writer mm. was that you felt last summer that the conversation around identity had become, mm. and I'll toss it back to you, maybe so disconnected from your own experiences yes. or so to use maybe a, I don't know if the word is appropriate, but almost like schizophrenic and nonsensical mm. that you felt the need to kind of jump in. Yes. Is that right?
1: Yes, yes, definitely.
0: Now, here's a question I have for you, Tamima, because this is something that was coming to my mind as I was preparing for our conversation. I'll start with the kind of bold question, and then I'll elaborate from there. So are conversations like the ones we're having right now part of the problem? Because here's what I feel is sort of the conundrum around this conversation, right? As Frank Jasper notes, In his fictional story, these externally applied identities that are imposed upon us are also simultaneously created and reified by us every day as we continue to discuss them. So, in one way, talking with an author such as yourself, who is racialized as black and writes about identity is perfectly appropriate, as race as we know it doesn't exist without the concept of blackness. Mm. So who better to talk to (laughs) than someone experiencing the foundational imposition Mm. who also writes about it at such great lengths? Mm. But The quandary here, right, is by engaging with you on the topic, by having you on, not just as Tomiwa, but Tomiwa, the Black author, to talk about Black identity. And thank you, Black writer, for talking about (laughs) Black issues. I think what I'm struggling with is, can we endeavor to examine and deconstruct race and quote-unquote Blackness without simultaneously reifying and propagating it? How do we do it?
1: I think the way to do it is by acknowledging the tension, which you've already done. Some people will just brush over that tension. But I do think another aspect of my writing is acknowledging the fact that there are often or usually two sides to everything. And acknowledging that tension between trying to, as you put it, deconstruct the racial categories that are often imposed on Black and other racialized people without reinforcing those categories. Acknowledging that that there is attention is one way of doing it because it shows that we grasp the issues at hand, which many people don't. It shows that we actually engage with the issue, the fact that we are able to actually acknowledge that there is attention there in the first place.
0: Yes, you're right. It's just, it's an interesting, to use a phrase you used earlier in the conversation, it's a double bind, Mm. right? Because there's this book called Racecraft by the Field Sisters here in America. There's early on in the book, it kind of compares why it's called Racecraft is they make the comparison of race to kind of like witchcraft, Mm. right?
1: Yeah.
0: In that race does not exist without racecraft. Mm. Race only exists because we invoke it, right? Mm. And so it's sort of like to travel back in time, however many years to when witches in Salem were believed to be real, right? Mm. And you could be a witch skeptic, so Mm. to speak, but even you talking about how witches aren't real and witches this and that, you're still part of the cultural milieu who is having a conversation around the problem of witches. And Mm. so by you invoking it, you are still keeping it alive. Making it real by invoking it. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So perhaps it's a problem. And I only say a problem in terms of the ways in which it limits people from being their full selves. Yes, Perhaps race is a problem that we can never escape because how can we ever escape it if we can never cease discussing it?
1: Yes, but the alternative is we we don't discuss it, but other people discuss it.
0: That's a good point, yeah.
1: And, And how are we going to persuade other people about the issues and about the ways in which their discussion of the issue is far too reductive and superficial without actually
0: engaging with them? Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. Well, as we're beginning to sort of taper off towards the end of our discussion, I think to turn away from issues of identity for a brief moment, you've talked about how there are other topics of interest that hold your attention. And that's even clear from your other unheard essays. So what are some other areas of interest for you, either as a writer, as a Briton, as a human being, that are fascinating you right now, that are really grabbing your attention, that if you could write at length for, or perhaps you've already written for, that really energize or entertain you?
1: Okay. A couple of things which I am either writing about now or I'm about to write about are the French novelist Gustave Flaubert. Next month is the 200th anniversary of Flaubert's birth. And I remember reading Flaubert's great masterpiece, Madame Bovary, about 10 years ago, and I was completely gripped by it. So I'm in the process, fingers crossed, of writing an article or an essay about Flaubert and the influence of his works on contemporary fiction. Another source of interest is the late British American essayist and author, Christopher Pitchens. I'm sure you must be familiar with him.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, um, I, I was I was a big fan of Pitchens when I was a teenager. In fact, I, I would say he was probably the earliest sort of serious author that I really engaged with. Contemporary author, I should say, when I was a teenager. I used to spend a lot of my free time watching him debate random people on YouTube.
0: What drew me to him, and I'd love to hear what drew you to him as well, was he just seemed to have even if I didn't always agree with him, I was so impressed with his ability to just attack sacred cows. Yes. So to speak.
1: Yes. You know? Yes. I I, th- I think what drew me to him was his sort of effortless eloquence, the clarity with which he spoke, the sense yes. that you can never be bored of listening to him, which is a Remarkable feature in a person, that sort of extraordinary oratorical skills, which is I think quite rare in somebody. The wits as well, the sense of humour, the erudition, the fascination with different topics. So he wasn't just interested in religion or foreign policy, but he was also interested in in literature and in intellectual culture and philosophy as well. And next month is the ten year anniversary of his death. And I'm writing an article about
0: him as well. Wow. I had not grasped that it had been 10 years. It doesn't seem like that long. Yeah. 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 There, there is something about, I mean, now I feel like after we wrap, I'm going to have to go back and like watch a Hitchens compilation or whatever, because there was <laughs> something about Independent of his politics, which Mm. again I would say uh, there were when it came to religion and stuff, I often agreed with him. And but there were places where we parted ways. And and granted, now that I'm I'm almost a different human being than I was ten years ago. I imagine if I went and watched it again, there might be more daylight or less. I'm not sure. Mm. But what I so loved about him, independent of his politics, was he deployed that kind of wit, that kind of intellectual incision like a knife mm. like it like he was able to just scalp exactly he was able to just cut through in his debates it's like he could find the weak point of whoever he was talking to and just and just expose it mm. in a way that is so difficult to do regardless of your politics and that was something that always mesmerized me about him
1: <laughs> yes yes the confidence the, just the absolute bullish confidence was yeah that, and i think the fact that i was a teenager as well mm-hmm. uh, probably shaped my sort of attitude to pitch because he was almost like a sort of James Bond-like figure to me,
0: <laughs> if,
1: that, if that makes sense.
0: Oh, absolutely. I could 100% see him in like a James Bond novel, 100%. Yeah,
1: yeah, that sense of, that sort of combative spirit within him, which I I just, I just found completely compelling.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. If he were in like a James Bond novel, he would be like an informant that James Bond would like meet in a pub, you know? <laughs>
1: In a casino, in a casino. Oh, a
0: casino. Yeah, that's right. He'd be in a casino. And he'd be like the only, he'd be like the only person who was quicker and, and could like kind of give James a hard time.
1: Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, with just huh. words, nothing exactly. else, just words.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so Flaubert, Hitchens, is there anything you're reading currently, maybe not writing about, but anything that you're reading that is that is really gripping you?
1: Just trying to think. Yeah, yeah well, if you, because you do follow me on Twitter, don't you? I do. Yeah, you would know that I'm also a big... I've got a passionate interest in translation, in literary translation. So I'm currently reading a book. Let me just try and find it. It's called Is That a Fish in Your Ear? It's got, it's got a very strange title, but it's basically about... The subtitle is The Amazing Adventure of Translation. And the author of the book is David Bellos, B-E-L-L-O-S. And Bellos is a translator from French into English. And the book is about all the different conceptual and historical dimensions to the art of translating a novel or translating any text, in fact, into another language. And I just find it fascinating because I think it also appeals to something which influences my thinking on race, which is the idea of transcending boundaries and also acknowledging the fact that context is crucial and important. And one thing that all translators know through their work is that you can't assume that one thing means the same thing exactly in a different context. So for instance, the word bonjour literally means good day, but in France, they use it as a substitute for saying hello to somebody. Ah. The word salut can mean both hello, but also goodbye. So it functions in different contexts. Words, you can't just look at words and view them as mirrors into something else. You need to always situate words in their particular context.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's so well said. There's a, you probably heard of it, a popular show here in the U.S., out of Korea called Squid Game. Yes, everyone's heard of it. <laughs> yeah, everyone's everyone's heard of it. And uh I still haven't seen it yet, my great shame. But I I saw this article that came out that was basically saying like hey, anyone who watched this who doesn't speak Korean, just reading the subtitles is not going to give you the full context of and understanding of, of the film. Of and course. so here's, here's an essay about why these certain phrases might mean something completely different from what you interpreted them as. Yes. I imagine you, of all people, are familiar with Samuel Beckett. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I remember when I first started reading him in college, or maybe it was a little earlier than that, uh, coming across the the fun little tidbit that at some point in his life, he started to write all of his work in French and then translate it from French to English. Yes. Yeah, French, obviously not being his native language because he was born and raised in Ireland, so he spoke and wrote in English. But I remember reading that he liked to write his plays in French first and then translate them from French to English because writing in a language that was not his native one made him intentionally be much more deliberate with his choosing of words and much more considerate in terms of what words he was going to use because he so actively had to think about what those words meant. Hmm. It was kind of like a self-imposed consideration that he put upon himself so he wouldn't just write as freely as he would have had he been writing in his native tongue and anyway that's just kind of what sprung to mind when you mentioned your fascination with translation
1: yes yes it's it's that yeah exactly it's that sense that words always need to be situated in a particular context that words words are almost like sort of magical things that you need to treat with respect. I think this relates again to my sort of, with my reverence for different cultures in in that uh, we shouldn't sort of just treat words or or different cultural expressions in a casual way. Mm. We, We should sort of, we should dignify them. And the only way to give dignity to them is by situating them in a particular context, which would make them more sensible. And I think this, this relates again to my views on race. And now I think that racial categories like blackness shouldn't be
0: viewed in a sort of abstract way, but should be rooted in particular contexts. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's so brilliantly said. I mean, if you think about it this way, if several hundred years or thousands of years from now, advanced humans or alien life, for some reason, discovers the remnants of 21st century British society, Mm. and they don't know how to read our language or whatever, Mm. and all they come across, and the only thing they're able to articulate is that, quote-unquote, Black people once lived here, right? Or white people once lived here, right? And you could do this about America or anywhere else, right? Just using that racial categorization would be, I guess, what one consider a bad translation. It would be too blunt. Mm. It wouldn't uncover... The nuances and mm. complexities of all the people living within Britain at the time, of course. and if it were put up for literary review, that translation of British life in the 21st century would be slapped down for being inaccurate because it wasn't appropriately articulate. Mm.
1: Yes, that translation would be bad because it doesn't recognize the particularity of what it's trying to convey.
0: Yes. Yeah, we really came <laughs> really came full circle. That's I never thought about that in that way, the linking between a really good translation mm. of one language to another mm. and how in many ways the imposition of race is like a bad translation of humanity.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's the way in which my interest in translation relates to my so yeah, interest in race.
0: Well, then that brings us to the final question that I ask every guest, and I think it's appropriately apropos here. As individuals, Tamiwa, we're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, caring person can't be thinking of everyone else, every other group of people all the time. It's impossible. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment? and offer empathy to?
1: I think the group of people I would like to offer empathy to are those that derive no sense of pleasure from reading novels. Some members of my family don't really enjoy, actually I'll generalize that, not just novels, but from reading in general. And I don't think my family would mind me saying this, but I think I'm basically the only person in my family that reads for pleasure. For a host of different reasons, most of my family don't really read for pleasure at all. In fact, none of them do, I I would say. And I just find that inability to derive pleasure from reading misfortunate because I think the pleasures that I derive from reading, both fiction and also nonfiction now, are so spiritually nourishing and transcendent that I find it completely unfortunate that other people are unable to appreciate it. I think it's almost like blind people not being able to see a magnificent work of visual art, Mm. like caravaggio or a work by Michelangelo, or deaf people not being able to listen to a piece of music by Bach or Beethoven. Even though Beethoven did become deaf later later in his life, but let's let's skip over that. I think, yeah, I think those analogies reflect my attitude and my my empathy to people that are unable to or are unwilling to derive any any sense of pleasure from reading.
0: Yeah, I totally relate to that. Have you seen the movie Being John Malkovich?
1: Yes, I have.
0: Yeah. For any listener who has, and I highly recommend it, it's a 1997 film, I believe, directed by Spike Jones mm-hmm. and written by Charlie Kaufman. Charlie, thank you. I was like, oh my God, he's one of my favorite screenwriters, and I was totally blanking on his name. Mm-hmm. For anyone unfamiliar, I mean, it's not really a spoiler at this uh, 24 years later, but it's basically about someone who discovers a portal that if they crawl through it, they end up inside of John Malkovich's head mm-hmm. and see what he sees mm-hmm. and live how he lives. Mm-hmm sort of an out-of-body experience where you enter someone else's body, a chance to live someone else's life for a set of time. Mm. And that's how I feel when I read a great piece of fiction. It's mm. as close as I'll get to living someone else's life. So I deeply relate to the empathy that you've extended because I feel the same way.
1: Mm. Yes, yes. And, and you could say that it's a very conventional argument to make that reading fiction itself as a form of empathy because you're being empathetic in, in the most visceral way to the characters that you're reading in the novel.
0: Yes, exactly. You're dedicating a portion of your own small, limited life to try and understand someone else's life. Yeah, I guess you're right. It is a feat of empathy to read. (laughs) Yes, it is. Indeed. Well, thank you, Tamiwa. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day today, and, and especially with the time zone differences. Thank you for the writing you do. While I think we both wish that the events of last year hadn't transpired, if there is a silver lining that came out of it, it means that you began to write on these issues because I think your writing is is wonderful and I think very well articulated and I think it brings something to the conversation that is needed. So thank you for your writing and thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you very much.